Thank you so much for joining The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I am your host, Sharon Feckety, the author of The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I hope you will go on Amazon and purchase the book or download it on Audible and listen to the book so you can get some more insight as to why I decided to start this podcast show a few years ago and continue the conversation. You're going to hear from professionals. You're going to hear from people with lived experience, those that struggle with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. Uh, You're going to listen to people that have recovered. Uh, You're going to hear resources about how you can navigate through this broken road to mental health and life in a business. And you will certainly be hearing me talk about the importance of having this discussion in business today. That is what I speak about at conferences, and I hope that you will take it seriously. We need to speak more about mental health in the workplace. So thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Please be sure to tell somebody you know that might be struggling to subscribe, to listen, to watch and share it with others. You are not alone on this broken road to mental health. I always love to start with a smile. I am your host, Sharon Feckety, and I'm so glad that you're here with me on the broken road to mental health. And I have Dr. Carrie Wilkins here with me today. Welcome to the show, first and foremost. Thanks for having me. Very excited to have this conversation. I want to show the listeners that show the listeners, show the viewers that are watching. And for the listeners, you'll have to just turn this on uh, Facebook or YouTube, but I am holding the Beyond Addiction Workbook for family and friends, which is, man, if I could have had this a few years ago, um, for my family and friends, that would have been fantastic. So I'm very happy you're here. And as I mentioned before we got started today, I really love to hear the why um, anybody gets into the work that they do. So if we could start there and then we'll have a nice little chat about all the great work that you're doing to help others. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel incredibly blessed every day that I get to do what I do because um, I'm just working with awesome people and watching people make changes. But um, I would say the broken road to mental health, I often call it a very bumpy road. Um, there's, we all have our own journey and, you know, definitely. Um, So I'm a psychologist now for about 25 years. And when I was uh, in my training, so I struggled with a eating disorder as a young adult and got into therapy and figured some stuff out. And like I said, decided that wasn't so good for me and I should stop doing that and then found other things that mattered more. Right. So, um, and went to graduate school and one of my uh, last clients in my training, you know, you have people that you work with while you're in training and I'd worked with her for a year and she was showing up for her appointments, sweaty and distressed. And I was getting all this supervision. And 25 years ago, we weren't really trained to talk about substance use issues at all. I mean, the amount that the field has changed in the last 25 years is dramatic. And that would be a whole nother podcast about the industry itself, but um, in the field of psychology, but uh, we weren't really trained. And so my last session with her, she acknowledged that she was drinking two bottles of wine a day. So for an entire year, I had been talking about all these other things that my supervisor thought I should be talking about and was never, ever encouraged to talk about substance use or be curious about it. I might've asked her something early in the beginning, but she said no. And I, so mm. I never asked again. Sure. And I just said to myself, that's never going to happen. Cause you know, she was an alcohol withdrawal the whole time, you know, oh so goodness. it was a year of therapy with 
completely on the wrong wrong topic, right? <laughs> so, right. Um, so I went on to get advanced training in substance use. And so I, was it really, that was the moment you were like, I'm never going to. I was enraged. I was furious. Yeah. I was furious Good. with myself. I was furious with everything. <laughs> so I just was like, wow. Um, so mm-hmm. I went on to get advanced training in addiction at a, mm-hmm. at a, my internship and my postdoc. And, and at a, at a point in addiction treatment that was pretty pivotal where it, um, it had been very kind of abstinence only 12 step based. The, the treatment system at that time was very split. Like the mental health programs didn't talk to the substance use programs. And if you were a client that had a substance use problem, but also a mental health issue, you know, the mental health program wouldn't take you until you were sober. And then if your mental health issues cropped up while you were in substance use treatment, they would say, we can't treat you because you're too X, Y, and Z. So it was very bifurcated and hugely problematic. And, you know, at the start of my career, those two worlds were actually starting to have conversations and try to work with people. And then there were a lot of what we call evidence-based treatments, these treatments that were starting to get some evidence behind them in clinical trials that they were actually more effective in helping people address these issues. And so I was kind of early on in my career trained in those. And so my partner and I, Dr. Jeff Foote, we started the Center for Motivation together 20 years Mm -hmm. ago, really started it with the mission of like, we're going to get these evidence-based treatments out into the world and prove that you can treat clients, you know, at all stages of motivation and engage them in the process of change. And where are you located? So the Center for Motivation Changes in New York City, and now we have an office in um, DC and in California. So we've got some offices and we have a residential program up in the Berkshires. So there's multiple treatment levels. Yes. Talking about where I'm from, like I was in Long Island. I grew up there and I wish I had. Yeah. Okay. Let's continue because this is fantastic. Yeah. And so, um, and one of the things I always say about the Center for Motivation and Change is we were kind of built by these older traditional programs because a client would call one of these other programs and they'd say, I really want to stop drinking, but I'm not so sure about my pot use. I don't think it's causing any problems. And the more mm-hmm. traditional programs would say, you have to be hundred percent abstinence in order mm-hmm. to come here, come back when you're ready. Right. Call, call CMC. <laughs> so yeah. we would say, sure, come and let's help you stop drinking and let's help you look at your cannabis use and your pot use and help you make a good decision about that um, over time. And, you know, a significant number of people will ultimately decide, yeah, that's not working for me either. If you give them some space to talk about it and you start to understand the function of it, you know, so one of the things, and we say this in the workbook, um, when you're looking at substance use issues, the, the whole idea of just kind of saying, this is a disease, it's all bad. This is a bad person doing bad things is, mm-hmm. A, wrong and be profoundly not helpful to be able to look at it from the perspective of like, okay, how does that behavior make sense to that person, right? That behavior mm-hmm. works in some way for them mm-hmm. in such a compelling way that they're willing to do it in spite of massive consequences. So mm-hmm. let's understand what the function of that is so that we can then be like, okay, your alcohol helps you manage your feelings about your relationship. It helps you feel less depressed. It helps you sleep at night because you have, you know, you have PTSD, whatever it is, but if my medicine, right. So if we can understand what you're medicating and then Mm -hmm. help you have additional skill, like learn different ways to do that and stick with you through that learning process, the, the, you're going to need that behavior less, right. But just telling somebody, give that behavior up because you're an addict 
and you shouldn't mm-hmm. do that behavior. Like there's no, there's not a lot of conversation there. And it really, for most people will activate a whole level of defensiveness that slows what I think the change process down. Like if we can, we can speed that change process up by the approaches that we use with people. So that's what mm. we've been doing the last 20 years now. I love it. So I remember the first time I went to rehab when I was 18 years old, um, it was after a family intervention. Mm. And the last thing I thought I was, was an alcoholic. Right. <laughs> I was 18. So that's normal was, for an 18 year old, right? <laughs> right. Right. I was just partying, you know, yeah. and, um, and after this intervention, and I went to an adolescent spot, I think it doesn't exist anymore, but it was called Seafield Pines. And I remember, you know, it was 14 to 21 years old. And I like, I just like found my people. I just like had a blast without alcoholic drugs, but I certainly did not think I was an alcoholic. There was no way I thought that now, you know, progression is a real thing. Um, which we won't get into because it's all in my book anyway, but I, I'm very intrigued by this whole unlearning mm. is how I feel when you, when you were talking, Carrie, had you said any of those things to me? Like I would have been like, there's only one way, mm. there's only one way to get sober. And there's only one way to do this. Mm. So I'm going to turn you off. Uh-huh. It's so different now, right? Because there was only, in my opinion, there was only one way you've got to, you come into an AA meeting and you get sober and you never yep. drink again. Yep. So no, and right. that's really powerful. And when that's yes. the way that you got sober and you're surrounded by people who might've died, had they not gotten sober that way, that's a lot of energy and emotion. And like, of course, I mean, <laughs> of course. Right. So, yes. I mean, it saved AA has saved countless lives and countless families, you know, so there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And if that sure. works, no, it you, saved my life. Yeah. If that works for you. Awesome. I'm not, mm-hmm. we're not going to, there's no reason to mess with that if it works right. for you, but the problem is it doesn't work for most people. Um, so it, it, it helps a very small people per- percentage of the people with substance use problems there. you got a whole host of people who reject it, won't engage with it, can't do it for a hundred so million different reasons. reasons yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And traditionally those people were just left out in the dark. Um, so these other models are like, let's actually grab hold of everybody and give people as many options as we can put in front of them so that they can engage in the change process. And the, the same is true for what the message families get, you know, in the tradition, the traditional message always used to be, if you're trying to help your loved one or helping somebody with a substance use, you have your own disease, which is codependency which again, that's a disease that actually doesn't exist. It doesn't, it, it literally does not exist. Um, you line 10 different treatment providers, you line up 10 different people and say, what is codependency? You're going to get 10 completely different answers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's, and, and family members want to help. The single biggest predictor of people getting into treatment is family members and people making changes is family members. And, you know, they get this messaging that they should distance themselves there's nothing they can do until their loved one bottoms out, which now with the opioid crisis is literally leading to death. Um, it's like, if we can stop saying that phrase, it would be great. Yeah. Amazing. Um, let's Life-saving. Yes. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are all just, these are part of our work has just been to really try to increase, you know, lay people for lack of a better mm-hmm. understanding of like, there's lots of different ways you can look at this problem. Um, and using stigmatizing language, 
boxing people into one way, you know, confronting people. These are all things that actually like really constrict and slow the change process down. And there's what we know by science is that kindness and all of these other strategies actually speed up the change process. So if we can all start to change these behaviors and um, start to look at this in a different way, world might be a little bit better place. Yeah. Well, Carrie, you are opening up a can of worms for me. So, um, go in. No, this is good. This is like the best because I say the, I say the term codependency a lot Hmm. for myself because, and, and I'm very open-minded. So that's a good thing for everybody. (laughs) If you are listening or watching, because maybe there's, all right, let me break it down like this. At 19 years old, I blacked out after my second rehab at a mental institution and moved to Detroit, Michigan and stayed there and smoked crack and almost died and had all these horrific, traumatic things happen to me. Came home, was in my parents' house, just depressed, just trying, just waiting to end my life. Not, there wasn't like, maybe I'm going to end my life. It was, I'm going to end my life. And I got very lucky, you know, because luck, I don't know, it's relevant, but where I had somebody really help me and went to a psychiatrist and took 20 milligrams of Prozac for six months. And I haven't been on anything since. Right. So I've been sober 28 years. I haven't taken any medication. Now I always feel like saying like, I don't, you know, whatever you feel about medication, I don't care. Yeah. So I don't care me personally, whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever works for anybody is I'm so happy it's working. Yeah. That's how I feel. hundred percent. But until I wrote my book in 2019, so we're fast forwarding 25 years now. Mm -hmm. I did not know, and I'm happy to admit these things today, I did not know that the trauma that I went through had something to do with my depression. Well, because no, well, nobody asked me right. if I was traumatized and people thought if they don't talk about me being away, it would help me, but it just pushed all of it down. Mm-hmm. And now in my life, when I hear you speaking, I'm I'm literally, I can't get any closer to the zoo. Like say more (laughs) because even in my recovery space, which did save my life, if it wasn't for that community, I had nothing else. There was no internet. There was nobody talking to me about trauma. It was, this is what I had. I was going to be in a room. I was going to be the youngest person there and I was going to be sober and my life was going to suck. That's what I thought. Of course, (laughs) certainly not that today, but there's so many other issues and in recovery itself, I see it because I wrote a book and it says mental health on it. And there's some crazy notion out there and crazy, probably not the best term, but that alcoholism and addiction and mental health and depression and all of it isn't somehow related, you know? And I love the, the, what you're saying about, cause it did feel like, well, you have to stop drinking. That's what you have to do. You have to stop drinking. Nobody was kind of diving into my, let's figure out what happened and slowly kind of let you integrate back into society. Right. No. And those were just, I mean, at the time you got sober, that was the reality, right? Sure. Those, those systems were very separate. And, you know, I think the, the messaging in that more traditional treatment world for, again, we could have a whole podcast on the, the, history of addiction treatment and how it I would came like to, to eventually yes mm-hmm. <laughs> how it came to be but uh-huh. um you know that it was typically lay people and the, even the professionals a lot of the professionals got sober in the 12-step community so then when they were doing treatment 
they were doing 12 step treatment, right? So, and they didn't have, they didn't have a lot of the expertise of like, oh, you actually have OCD. Like you're, you're self-medicating because you're ruminating and you've got rituals and you can't sleep or in your case, probably PTSD, you know, like whatever yeah. happened to you in Chicago, there were probably all Detroit. sorts of- I would have rather Chicago. Whatever. Okay, exactly, those whatever. Midwestern. No, those Midwestern but, states. But you know what? What you just said is a big thing. Do yeah. you know that somebody asked me only a year ago after telling them some of the things I had been through, they said, do you ever think that you um, have PTSD? And I was like, what? Huh. Yeah. Well, now that you say that, maybe. maybe. Yeah. But can you imagine that like 25 years of not even thinking that was a thing? I think yes. it's, I know you, you yeah. understand, but. Oh, and I, you know, I use um, this young woman I worked with we use her like, like as an example in the mm -hmm. trainings that we do for family members, because when I started working with her, she'd probably been to eight different rehabs. She was 22 at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, her parents, there's such, she was a terrible drug addict kid. They tried everything, you know, they were, and, you know, within just like with you, like the second you referenced, yeah. I went to, you know, to mm -hmm. Detroit and was smoking crack. I was like, in my mind, I was like, and got badly traumatized, probably yeah. bad stuff happened. Mm -hmm. And then you jumped into the rest of your life. Right. So she came into my life with this whole treatment history, mm -hmm. you know, like very significant, very disturbing substance use. And, you know, it took about a year and a half. Mm. She told me she was raped and held hostage for three days as a 14 year old. Mm. And so all these treatment programs were trying to get her to go to AA meetings yeah, which is in a room of people, a room of strangers, right? Men. Her, her little nervous system mm -hmm. is like, I'm not safe here. This is horrible. Mm -hmm. So she never engaged in 12 step. And so every treatment program made her and her family feel like you're not taking this seriously mm. until you take this seriously and do this every single day. You're not going to be able to be sober. The reason why she couldn't be sober was because she had massive PTSD. She yeah. was having flashbacks. She was having nightmares. She didn't feel safe in AA meetings, you know? So mm. it was like 10 years of a young person's life mm. completely mm. lost. And, you know, and she still has wounds from all that messaging of your, you're not doing the right thing. You mm. know, um, she still can't go to AA. She's found other ways, you know, but she's just so against that now because it was so jammed down her throat mm. at a time in her life where she couldn't possibly use it. It would be unbelievably helpful to her if she could engage with it now because like the community and the you know like shared sure. experience like it would be but those scars are those scars yeah. are there i'm so excited to tell you about our sponsor valley bank to know that we have a bank that thinks so much about mental health in the workplace has made me so proud Valley Bank is my bank for business and has been since the day I opened 10 years ago. When I was introduced to them, I was told that I was going to really like everybody that worked for the bank. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Turns out they were right. I like everybody that works there. They are good people, nice people, and they care about others. They care about the community. But the thing I am most proud of is how they are welcoming the conversation about mental health in the workplace into their bank and willing to take that risk and talk about it in our community. Valley Bank is definitely 
forging the way in business to open up this conversation. If it wasn't for my father's employee assistance program back in the day, 28 years ago, I would not be on this podcast today. It just goes to show when you offer these resources to your company and to your team, Miracles can happen. I am one of them. So Value Bank not only offers an employee assistance program to their staff and their team members, but they also send out these great vitality monthly communications, bi-weekly wellness resources, and they're willing to sponsor a podcast that is about mental health in life and in business. So if you have not connected with Value Bank, I highly recommend you do. Um, you know, so I think the more we can just have compassion in these conversations and curiosity about like what works for you, you know, what is a substance doing for you? What do we need to do to help you replace it? Maybe mm -hmm. AA works for you. Maybe smart recovery works for you. Maybe you need to see a therapist about your learning disability. It, God knows what, maybe you need to see a rabbi. <laughs> you know? Right. Who knows? But, like who knows, but let's just keep having the conversation until you can figure out what works for you. And I mean, I think what you're saying and have obviously been touched by is these problems are so isolating, you yeah. know, like that depression you were feeling, like they're just, people end up feeling so alone and so isolated yeah. that the power of the 12 step community is it's a community, right? It's yeah. a community of people who know that shame, yeah, you know, understand it, aren't going to shame you back, you know, like right. it's just, you know, so that, and that's incredibly important and powerful. So finding your community, wherever that yeah. is, is definitely something that, yeah. Um, always. <laughs> well, that's what I say now, you know, I feel yeah. like I was given this, you know, I, my, it was my dad's EAP counselor, right? So employee assistance program. Mm -hmm. And he thankfully was uh, like me, you mm -hmm. know, and every therapist and every, nobody could tell me that they were sober or had a heroin addiction mm -hmm. or were struggled with eating disorders. They, they showed up as the professional that was going to treat the moron that was sitting in front of them. Right. That's mm -hmm. how it felt. Yeah. Right. Right. And so this guy finally revealed himself to me. So I started to feel safe. Mm. And then he asked me if I was having suicidal thoughts. And so it was that question, mm. me feeling safe, yep. a love of my family and community that helped me. Right. I had like a three to nine prong attack, but I realized today the, the saddest part, which I'm sure is so frustrating for you, because it's certainly frustrating for me to hear <laughs> is that this is not so common. And, you know, it takes the right, people have to end up in the right space with the right people that understand how to treat somebody like me, mm -hmm. like that woman you were sharing about, yeah. because that trauma and all of those things is when I started hearing Gabor Mate and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm like, what is all of this? I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And then you write, this. So I want to be able to talk about this because yeah. I'm going to ask you now for a part two. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask now because I do feel like this is something in my biggest conundrum is people asking me where I should go and what I should do. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it's so individualized, right? It's like, so tell me about this. Yeah. So the workbook, so for the, about the last 10 years, there's a very um, effective approach for family members called craft, which is community reinforcement and family training. So like you said, your family did a intervention on you, right? So historically family members were told you got to go to Al-Anon, got to do an intervention, or you got to let them hit rock bottom and figure right. it out themselves. Right. Those are kind of the three. That's what happened. Three yeah. options. Right. <laughs> right. Um, for the last 
30 years now. Um, and they don't even do research on craft anymore because it's just like, they're like, there's no point to doing more research. It wins hands down every single clinical trial that has ever been done on it. When you compare it to Al-Anon and interventions, when families go to Al-Anon, about 5% of them are successful in getting their loved one into treatment, which is fine. Al-Anon, the goal of Al-Anon is not to get your loved one into treatment. The goal of Al-Anon is to take care of yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but I promise you, when you talk to family members, they want their loved one to get help, right? So yeah. Oh, family yeah. mem- that's really what family members want. Yes, they, want. they do. Right? So Al-Anon yes, can be incredibly do. helpful, but that's not what it's going to get you. Interventions get about 30% of people into treatment. Um, interventionists will, sell, will tell you, I get 100% of people into treatment. <laughs> In the clinical trials, it was like a 30, maybe 40%. And the problem is a significant number of families drop out they they do they go through the whole thing and then they're like I can't do it yeah I can't do this to my family member um, and then what we see as treatment providers all the time is people come in having interventions done with them and they're pissed they're pissed at their family they don't feel safe they don't want to be in treatment which is just okay now you've like burned this bridge which was potentially your biggest resource you know with your family um, and now you're having to repair all of that for the next however many months so I'm um, you know. I, we recommend interventions every once in a while when it's like, this is the, there Less. is actually nothing you can do, but you know, the problem is people wait too long and then they end up in that space mm-hmm. as the only option, this craft model. And now the invitation to change model is really like, I wish if every parent read that workbook, I think we could prevent a lot of problems because mm-hmm. people just don't know what to do when they see someone they love struggling with a substance use issue, yeah. right? They just don't know. They don't know how to talk about it. They don't know how to think about it and they don't know what to do about it. There's actually a lot of very effective things that you can do to change the environment, use the power of the relationship, use communication skills, you know, to really shift the dynamics and the relationship and get the person internally motivated to make some changes for themselves. Um, It's probably too much to talk about in this particular podcast, but um, we can have round two. We have to. Because um, I have, I have 19,000 questions. <laughs> so <laughs> the um, the invitation to change, we took all of craft. This We've been teaching family members craft for years. Um, yeah. And we were actually trying to teach family members to coach other family members because there's never going to be enough treatment providers ever. Um, and so if we can get lay people to start. Yeah helping each other with more of these evidence-based ideas, we could A, prevent problems and B, actually just reduce the shame and stigma that comes along with these problems. So um, we started a nonprofit about five years ago now where we're um, teaching family members, first responders, clergy, you know, just anybody in a helping role, um, this method of helping, um, which includes all of these effective strategies of craft, a big dose of self-compassion because turns out helping people struggling with substances is actually hard. It's scary. It's maddening. It's hard. Um, So we put a lot of self-compassion in there. And then um, we put this whole section called what we call helping with understanding, which is really helping people understand that concept I talked at the beginning, which is behaviors make sense. Let's understand what the problem really is. um, And let's give you the tools to think about it in a different way. Let's actually help you work with ambivalence. Mm. Like understand what ambivalence is because I can make I can make you defensive in one nanosecond with how I talk to you, right? Um, and I can say things that make you want to hang on to your behavior more. Sure. Or I can use communication strategies that get you talking, get you looking inward, right? So 
helping family members actually use some of those strategies. And then um, this idea that one size doesn't fit all, like really, we need to really expand the landscape in terms of what is helpful to people and really giving, helping them find their way. And you as a family find your way because families need different things. Some families are like, yeah, I'm going to Al-Anon. It's super helpful to me. My kids in treatment, it's all great. Yeah. Great. We're not touching that. Mm -hmm. Another family may never go to treatment because right. they don't culturally, they don't believe in it for religious persons. Mm-hmm. They don't believe in it. You know, their, their community doesn't have access to it. We've got to give those people tools um, that resonate with them and resonate with their communities. So that's what we're trying totally. to do with the nonprofit is really disseminate this out further into the world. I remember the first time. So told, somebody told me that the reason that they weren't coming into a 12 step program is because they had religious trauma. And mm-hmm. I was like, what are you even yep. talking about? We hear it all the time. Man, when I heard that, I was like, well, God, that makes total sense. Like, I feel, I just feel grateful. I feel very grateful that I get to have these conversations and that we get to talk about um, different approaches, approaches that work. I feel like, you know, because I talk a lot about how I can see now looking back how all of my trauma, my PS, whatever we want to call it, you know, how it. I was in toxic work environments and I was in toxic relationships and all of those things, you know, um, got me to where I am today. And now it's just unlearning so many things and being open to so much more because I do see that the world, not only do we need more help out there. Okay. But we need, we, we certainly need a workbook um, because the family and the friends, when I speak now, it's always, I have a child that is struggling just like you. Yeah. How did you make it out? And I got one answer. You know, I have a few answers, but I'm 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 thrilled to have something tangible to say. Yeah. This is something that you need and that we can um we can understand more because it's not it's it is maddening to me. I won't bring you into that, but to know how many people, if they get stuck with the wrong therapist or the wrong rehab or in the wrong, how much damage it can actually do and they can stay medicated for life. And I was told the story and I say this often today, I was told I had a chemical imbalance. Hmm. So for 25 years, when I told my story, I said, I had a chemical imbalance. The doctor told me I had to take this medication, but, and then it was like, duh, you big idiot. If you had one. You would still need to take that medication for mm-hmm. the last 25 years because you haven't had to. So obviously that story was not the one that was truthful. So well, I, go ahead. Those, those stories are powerful, right? And when that doctor said that to you, it it made sense to you at the time. And it, it did. And it worked for you for, mm-hmm. you know, like, and so you've used, I, I'm not trying to correct you, but one of the things that we talk a lot about, is like, you can't actually unlearn something. Mm-hmm. Learning never goes away. Um, you can learn new things on top of it, but mm-hmm. all that stuff is still in there. You know, I mean, it's just in there. You learned it. It was a habit. It was a way of thinking, whatever. But, you know, so that's part of why we're constantly talking about the need for self-compassion in the new learning processes, because it takes a freaking long time to learn new things. And yes. when I hear somebody like yourself, like the amount of time, like for you to have as much sobriety as you have, like that's a massive amount of learning, you know? Mm -hmm. So when I talk to like parents whose kids or people who have a loved one, who's just starting to get sober, I'm like, you would never be furious. If you would never sit your kid down and say, play a Chopin etude if they didn't know how to play the piano. Right. Yeah. When your loved one gets out of rehab, if you're like, be sober the rest of your life, that's essentially saying play the Chopin etude with 
they need piano lessons. They need yeah. to practice. They're going to need multiple piano instructors probably as they go along the way, because like the, you know, the first person giving them a lesson isn't going to be able to take them to the next level. So you're going to need a different person. They're going to learn some things wrong. The rhythm's yes. going to be off. The notes are going to be off. You would never be in a rage with them. You would right. be like, oh, you got to practice more. Right. Yeah. But we get furious with people who can't be so. Well, I'll tell you what, there were a lot of people furious at me. Right. Right. But that's, but that's our culture. And that's, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I'm totally, I'm down with it. I'm yeah. like, yes, I understand. I yeah. get it. I also would like another, you know, but let's change it. Let's yes. Change it. <laughs> but yeah. But when you know something, you can't pretend you haven't seen it or heard it. Right. Yeah. We've all yeah. heard this before. I can't now, I can't tell the same story. Right. I have to be more open to it. And I do feel like just because of the show that I started in 2019, that I, if I can learn all of this, um, I won't say I'm learning anymore. Right. I, there is hope. Yeah. But we hope that people understand it earlier because when I, when I know, when I go into a recovery meeting that nobody wants to hear about my depression or the issues that I struggled with, and then I know 90% of that room, like me, tried to kill themselves because they didn't have the thing that took away the pain yeah. and the trauma and the, there's an issue. Yeah. Right? So I'm yeah. um, very grateful. I don't want to give anybody the impression that I'm not grateful for the place that actually saved my life. Yeah. Yeah. But there are a lot of, we can do a lot more now. And I'm so grateful that, um, that you wrote this um, <laughs> along with Jeffrey and is it yeah, Jeffrey and Kenneth? Yeah, there's three there's of us. Three of you. And, yeah. and when do when did it come it takes out? It's a village. It, it a does. Village. No, it does. <laughs> what and you just published it, just, it right? Yeah, it just came out, I think, in September, maybe. I think it was I'm September. gonna be your biggest advocate. Well, um, you should you and your listeners, the nonprofit website is um cmcffc.org. And in the next year, there's tons of free there's free resources on there. There's videos, there's videos you can share with people. Like if you're like, this concept resonates with me, I want you to understand this, you know, like yeah. there's um and we're doing trainings for family members to learn, like we do workshops and trainings all the time. So if people want to learn that approach or hear people talk about it, you can sign up for a training and we fundraise so that we can scholarship people who can't afford to come. So um, it's, you know, we're trying to make it so that accessible, accessible. Yes. Um, <laughs> we need for it. everyone for everyone. Yes, so. Everybody deserves to get great care and great help. Yeah. Everybody. And, and families really are the most powerful. Mm -hmm. They're potentially the most powerful resource we have here and they're being massively underutilized. So I agree. I agree. Well, I'm so grateful to have this and I'm please come back. Yes. I'm going to Anytime. ask. Yeah, I'm going to have Alyssa reach out to you because I would okay. like to do a part two. I feel like it's not enough. And, you know, the attention span of the humans is slowly dissipating. So let's keep their attention good. We have all okay. of the links to get Great. in touch in the show notes. And um, and I look forward to having this conversation again soon. Thank you so much for being yeah, here. Thanks for sharing your story and having me. Thank you. Don't forget to check out Valley Bank for all your banking needs. They are supporting mental health in the workplace and beyond. Thank you, Valley.